Welcome, weary travelers, to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. Grab a drink, get comfortable. I'm your host, your nemesis, your long-lost brother, and you know it, I know it, the one that got away, Andrew Pish. On this Artist's Brain episode, we had the pleasure to sit down with Kiff Vandenhuvel. Kiff's an improv and sketch comedy veteran. He's an alumni of the Second City Comedy Theater. He's directed a ton of sketch comedy. And at Second City Hollywood, he's taught voiceover. He's taught improv. He's taught directing. What hasn't he taught? Kiff is also consistently working as an actor and has appeared in hundreds of TV and radio commercials and is well-known in the video game community as the voice of Zachary Hale Comstock in Bioshock Infinite, which is so cool and also as Walter in the Walking Dead video game series, and also from his work with Disney Infinity. He's full of passion, and his love of performance, and specifically improv, is inspiring. In our interview, we talked to Kiff about the origins of the modern improv technique as developed by Viola Spolin. We talk about owning the legitimacy of your improv craft as a legitimate performance technique in an industry which doesn't quite understand or respect the craft of improv. We also talked about establishing a solo improv practice, how important it is to build confidence as a performer, and how it was to work with Al Pacino. Hey, I'm Scarface. <clears throat> that's my, that's my uh, impersonation of Al Pacino. Anyways, uh, talking to Kiff inspired me, genuinely. And I know it can be the same for you, too. So let's get this show on the road, y'all. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. What's up? <gasps> Kiff! Hi! Hey, hey! Oh, it's so you. nice to see your face. You, too. Um, this is Travis and Andrew. Hey, Travis and Andrew. Guys, I'm this Kip. is nice Kiff. Hey, Kiff. You guys have probably at some point overlapped at the jigsaw, I'm imagining. So maybe you've seen each other. But um, and but if not, then hello. This awesome. is them. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's great to meet you guys. I, I took a look at a, at a few of the a few of the things that you guys have been doing on the Instagram uh, feed and your stories and stuff and saw like your slow improv scene and like all that kind of stuff. It's, uh, it's really great. And uh, it's, uh, it's always great to be talking to improvisers about doing what we get to do. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So yeah. Nice. yeah. We've been having a good time. It's been interesting during, yeah. you know, all of this to try to connect with each other and still feel like we're sharpening our improv skills and, this was one way. That's awesome. Were you guys doing this do, doing this show pre-pandemic as well? Or is this like something that emerged during the time? It had been talked about pre-pandemic. Okay. But then pandemic afforded us the time for the three of us to actually be able to not just do improv. Well, it's because all of our improv shows were gone. So then all of a sudden we were like, look at all this time we have. <laughs> yeah. I, I started doing... I was doing like an improv workout group with a lot of VO actors, and uh, we were doing it sort of fleshy over at Bang Zoom and Burbank, like right at the beginning of 2020. And then uh, I've been teaching like a VO improv workout group on Monday mornings 
So I was like, oh, you know, it, it works in this space. It's not ideal, but it'll work. We'll just, we'll just play the kind of games that you can play and try long form and try a gym game and see what works. I started doing it with that group that we had done the fleshy improv together with. And one of the women in the group, maybe we had done it like two or three weeks. And I was like, oh, this is fun, you know, but you know, we don't need to knock ourselves out or whatever. And she was like, um, I'm a, I'm a frontline nurse doing uh, COVID stuff. And this is the one thing I look forward to every week, this hour and a half. It's brutal. And I was like, well, that being the case, you know, I'm just a stupid comic, but if I can contribute in some way and it helps lighten the load for you, then we will always have this every, every Sunday night. It will always be here and we'll always play. And we have, I think there's only been one time that we missed in the past year. Wow. It's been great. It's been, you know, I mean, not just, I mean, on one level, just connecting and stuff, but forming a group of people who've never met physically in person. Yeah. You're finding ways to connect and also lighten the load for people who need it. I think that's so wonderful. I did a mocap gig with this woman maybe two months ago and mentioned it to her and then invited her and she invited a friend and like they have no improv experience or little to little to none. And my feeling is like, look, the rules of improvisation are about as easy as you can get. All you have to do really is abide by them. Everything else is, is reps. It's just time in the gym. If you trust and you can listen and react, there's nothing you can't do. Let's get some reps in. And it's a very forgiving room. And we're not trying to win any awards. We're just trying to stay active and play. And everyone's getting better. And that's that's the advantage of it. I feel like this is a great place to jump in. Zoom improv is super new to all of us. We're all still trying to figure out the little tricks of this new format. We had an interview with Roy Yannick from Austin from P- uh, Parallelophonograph. I think I got that right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he he dropped like two or three little Zoom improv tips and then it changed the way we play because we were like, oh, we hadn't even thought of that. So right off the bat, I'm curious if you found any little like Zoom specific tricks or or not even tricks, but maybe like good advice for people. Uh, the first is using the whiteboard. Do you guys use the whiteboard when you play? No. Uh, we did this at Second City all the time. It's just, you just take a big piece of white paper and then you um, throw up, uh, you know, a bunch of different, uh, here we are. Great. So I'll share a whiteboard with you and I'll uh, throw text up and it's like, okay, uh, locations. And then um, you shout out a bunch of locations. So you do this into these quadrants. So then there's locations and then maybe this is uh, objects. Uh, Travis, your last name is Cox. So, so TC, things that are TC like time capsule or you get the idea and then you get a bunch of those and then current events or whatever if you're doing something topical. And then you populate all these squares with a bunch of suggestions at the top so that you don't stop and get suggestions throughout. The audience is delighted by it. And then you just cross the things off when you call out scenes. So you'll be like, oh, I want to see a scene at the Eiffel Tower uh, with um, with President Biden acknowledging the genocide because that would be a really funny scene. And then you go from there. But so that's that's how we use the whiteboard because uh, as a place to, to do that kind of stuff. I also love using ArtStation or DeviantArt and since a lot of the work that I've been doing lately has been more driven by by VO and by character improvisation and, uh, you know, animation and video game work and trying to integrate 
integrate the stuff we do as a group into a personal place. So you use it for yourself on your auditions. Um, so we'll say, all right, maybe you're going to be, let's, let's get, let's do zombie. So I'm going to do a search for zombies and there is a bunch of different zombies. I'll be like, Oh, uh, this is an interesting looking zombie. I, I've not been given any information about the zombie, but let's play this zombie. It seems kind of sentient. It's very powerful. His his hair is quaffed. So, so maybe the zombie is is not like a kind of a zombie, but more sentient, like these uh, Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead zombies. So, like we might do a scene between this zombie and this ninja. So <laughs> then we'll toggle between these two characters having a scene, uh, but it allows the people who are are playing to have a visual reference and become that. And it's something we could never do on stage. It's interesting too, to make it, it's like you're making, you're giving people tools so that they can be their own drill sergeant when they are just working on different voices or auditions and stuff. They have tools to be like, oh, cool. I can play by myself. I don't have to be in a class or be in person, which I mean, I'm always looking for stuff like that because I just felt like before I found improv, you know, when you're working on acting, if you're not in a class or even if you are, you're like, well, what could I do today to work on my craft? And I love like finding new tools. That's really right. cool. Do you have Viola's book, The Improv for the Lone Actor? I do not. <sighs> okay. So for a wedding present, I'll get it for you, but don't wait that long. <laughs> so just get it. Okay. It's $17. It is basically Viola Spolin's Improvisation for the Theater, but it's just a side coaching. I've you. read that one. Yeah, that's great. I've taught several. Um, I did it for Help Network. I just did it for the Savara Project, which was a voiceover driven one. But like my approach to taking that book and implementing it into your daily practice so that it's imagination practice. You know, okay, I can't do a space walk because I'm in my closet or in a tiny space, but I can do a space canoe trip. It's still the same idea. I'm just connecting to whatever environment that I create. So rather than walking through frozen tundra, I'm paddling through the frozen tundra. Uh, you know what I mean? You just, you just pivot and you go, I'm going to take my legs out of the equation, but I can still do object work. I can still play with proximity with the camera. So a lot of times in our improv scenes, yeah, I'm sure you guys do it too. Like you, you play with the fourth wall now as my portal to my, uh, my fellow players. So you'll punch each other or slap or, you know, uh, d- do whatever. But then the solo improv stuff has been, especially during pandemic, I've really leaned into that in a lot of the classes that I'm teaching. You know, it's like, I, I love group improv. I love it, but it's terminal. You know, when you're in a great group, you might get to play a bunch of improv festivals and stuff, but unless you've pitched and developed and produced your own show with your ensemble to get the thing, unless you're like the state, like that ship has passed. If you're not at Saturday Night Live, that's all written anyway. Like the amount of improv that you get to do is really, it's a satisfying art form, but that's, that's where it ends unless you start to use it to write. So at least that's the second city's approach. And especially in this context, it makes it difficult. It's a little bit of a cul-de-sac. So then it's like, well, why are agents sending your actors to get improv classes? Is it to do group improv? No, it's to make you comfortable in making strong choices in auditions and to recognize that your choices are disposable. If a casting director says, oh, it was great. Give me another take. You know, it doesn't throw you. Right. And it allows you to not even necessarily come up with funny bits. It was like looking like when Travis and Andrew were doing that scene where you guys were playing this emotional scene between two guys, 
that was really wonderful, beautiful acting. When you guys are listening to each other, it's the stuff that Holly was talking about last time you guys had the show. This is about living truthfully in a moment. And we just, we don't have a script. That's the difference. And improv is not comedy writing. That's a different discipline. Improv is about living truthfully and listening and reacting. And you can practice that on your own. If I can do it whenever I want. And it makes me a better actor because improvisation is just another way in like, you know, like Stanislavski, like the method, like Meisner Spolin is part of that. And a lot of those games overlap because it's about doing the thing and just being truthful in the moment. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I, I was, I, I bought her book on directing. I mean, I've been directing sketch comedy since, since Detroit, since like 2000, 2000. Getting my hands on that book was really in- interesting because I always thought that Spolin's books were about doing what we do now, you know, doing short form or doing a long form thing or doing the set. And it's not. The origin of her developing the, the improv curriculum was to take brand new, fresh out of high school kids who just graduated with no experience and seasoned professionals who've walked the boards for the Royal Shakespeare Company and, and fresh out of, uh, off of Broadway and put them into a room together and to be able to have a common lexicon and to be able to play together without have to have this gap of experience separating them. So she created games to get them playing together and communicating and having a common experience and a common language so they can all understand and work together in a very, very short amount of time. That's the, that's the origin of what our art form as how it is represented in the modern space as a direct descendant to viola. That's where it's, that's its origins. So my goal is to remind people of that, to remind them to use it for that function, as well as to, you know, play zip, zap, zap and, and ABC and counting and, <laughs> and space blocks and all that stuff. That's so cool. Cause it's like improv as it is now. And as it's evolving, like the idea that it's like, Oh, it's, it's come from just another method into performance. It's just another entry point the way that these other acting teachers are. And, and I have found that to be true. I didn't even like, I didn't know how much it would change me as an actor, you know, cause I, I used to just do plays exclusively and Shakespeare took a break from that just to focus on improv for like five years, really hardcore. And when I finally got back to scripted work, I was like, I can't even, it's not the same at all. I feel like it was turned upside down and I was this different artist. And even though I hadn't done scripted work in five years, I was better. Like, I was like, whoa, I just feel like I have so many more access points. This is crazy. Yeah, completely. And I do feel like we treat this form because it's not traditionally taught in a curriculum outside of the schools that you go to groundlings, UCB, second city IO, and forgive me for any other school who's, who I've just glossed over, but it's not taught as a college curriculum. It's usually like an, like a, it's a student organization. Lisa was in ours. We created it, but because of that, it's not valued the way Stanislavski is. How many improv actors do you know who are brilliant actors, but are hung up about their process saying that my process doesn't make me a legitimate actor. That for some reason, even though I have wonderful access and I'm a wonderful listening, open-hearted actor, because I didn't go to NYU, I'm not a good actor. 
I don't have a master's degree. I'm, you know what I mean? Or like the comedy is like, yeah, I think it's so right. undervalued. I mean, I don't even know that, I know that there's comedy studies, but I feel like it's really rare to be able to get a degree in comedy. And yeah. I certainly haven't heard of yeah. one for improv. Like, can you get a master's degree in improv? Like, I know so many people who have the equivalent of a PhD in improv, but you can't, like, you can't get that piece of paper to, like, legitimize it to other people. And I was just talking about this with Sherry. Remember the the end of The Wizard of Oz, where the scarecrow is like, well, I'm not smart. And Professor Marvel says, yes, you are. You know, what you lack is you lack confidence. And I'll give you confidence. Here's a piece of paper that says that you're (laughs) smart. Oh, thank you. And then he recites some equation. That's who we are. We're the scarecrow with this feeling of not having a sense of accomplishment or value because we didn't go to some school, but we spent more money and more time and more energy than most of our colleagues in the theater. Like most people I know who've got an MFA will do a three-year, an intense three-year program, and they log a ton of hours. The amount of time I've spent at the Second City on stage dwarfs that. Yeah. Easily. In, in voluntary rehearsals, you guys getting together to play and cre- and like the the amount we're, we're the, to to master this craft and still be pursuing it. Like I think I think the thing that I'm calling for more than anything else is like value your time and and have confidence in it. You don't have to walk into a room with your hat in your hand because you don't because because some professor didn't say that you got a 4.0 in something or even a 2.5 and you've done the appropriate coursework. You have, you've been doing it and you've been navigating it without a structure. You've been finding it where in the gutter, you've been finding it wherever you can and piecing together a, a doctorate in theater and in, in improvisation and you specialize in it. And we find bad habits. We certainly, I mean, from cage matches and gunslinging and all the other kinds of stuff that happens. But at the end of the day, like, hold your head high. You're logging time. And that counts for something. And in in the business that we're in, the business of show, that work counts. And you don't have to go into a casting director office having five years working at Second City. Like, well, I've only done that. But I mean, I didn't really get a B.A., at a general college when communication, you know what I mean? Like, don't apologize for your skill. <laughs> it's so nice to be reminded of this because I can't even tell you how often it comes up in my life with like family or friends who like don't really understand what you do. And then they accidentally, you know, they have no hard feelings, but they accidentally <laughs> like undercut what you do by yeah. being like, well, yeah, are you going to get a master's degree or like, oh, maybe you should. And, uh, and like, but you just did, you just like play around and you're like, oh man, you don't understand at all. So it like feels really good yeah. to hear from somebody who I like, I think you're like an incredible improv vet and it feels like very good to be like, yeah, we're putting in the hours. Like feels, yeah, yeah that feels good. Yeah, we are. I'm glad. I'm glad. Do you like schedule your like these little workouts that you had, you mentioned that you did like 10 minutes here or like whatever. Do you, do you schedule rehearsals for yourself or do you just kind of jump into it when you feel like you have time? Generally how I do it is I'll do like some kind of a warm up, uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes. I, I should do it daily. Think about how great you would be if you did that daily. Think about if you just did a spacewalk every day and did a little bit of object work every day 
sitting in a room with an invisible object, just an invisible baseball. And like, what color is it? And what color is the stitching? And how does it feel in your hand? And how real it becomes within five seconds of playing with it. If you did that daily, how amazing would you be? Like, I work out every day in, in VR. Right now, I do Supernatural in VR, which I absolutely adore. And it's uh, really exhausting, but super fun. And then I also got these voice straws, which help me uh, with vocal health for VO work. Wait, what's a voice straw? All right. Sidebar. <laughs> This woman named Mindy Pack. She's like voice coach to like Justin Timberlake and Miley Cyrus and Miley Cyrus and all these cats. We did this thing called the Savara Project earlier this year where it was a voiceover intensive. And what a voice straw is, is it's a little straw about the diameter of a coffee stir. And basically when you do exertions, when you yell in particular in video games and in cartoons, your, your vocal cords slam against each other like 400 times a second. And when you get raspy, it's because they get tired and they get misaligned and air is coming through there. So you get this extra sort of air. So what the voice straw does, the idea is to create good energy and pressure so that when that's because the pressure is coming from underneath it, the pressure restores them and puts them back in alignment. Like, for example, my voice in the afternoon right now, it's a little strained. It's not bad. But if I go like this for like 20 seconds, I'm creating back pressure in there. And it's helping my cords to realign. And now, okay, yeah. I can feel a difference. It feels more warm. I just feel like more energized, all that kind of stuff. What? This is if so I'm going to cool. scream in a session, if I'm going to yell, I'm going to turn my game down so it doesn't blow it out. So if I got to yell, like, for example, if I'm yelling and there's zombies coming and a zombie theme, this look out, there's zombies. I can feel in my throat, like this sort of roughness that comes from yelling. So with this, it helps reset it, right? And I'm going to yell when I'm going to yell through this to make my chords in alignment and ready to go. Look out, there's zombies. That's so cool. Crazy. So the difference is prepares my voice for it. I'll bring my game back up. It prepares my voice for the, for the exertion and it doesn't have lasting effects. Like I don't feel like I just yelled, which is crazy. So in terms of, in terms of improv workout, like, especially before I do my auditions, I'll do, you know, like a centering exercise and then think about the environment, especially in video games, because they don't give you anything. You don't get any context at all. Often you might get like 15 unrelated lines and it's up to you to create the context for each of those lines so that it makes sense. And it's the same thing as if you stepped off the back line and someone's like, you're goblins. And you go, oh, I'm a goblin. And uh, where are we? Well, we're uh, sitting around a campfire. Oh, so we do that. But in our auditions, we don't. In our auditions, we don't think about context or where we are. Who am I talking to? What am I wearing? What am I eating? What am I doing with my arms? All the things that we do when we're improvising. So you just apply that same thing and you get accustomed to improvising with yourself. So maybe you think about what's the line that was said before that would spark me to go, get your hands off my mutton, you bloody pig. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. So that you're reacting to something rather than just saying the line. I was really bumping my head about it. Like, what's my daily practice? I should have one, but I don't know what that is. 
But then Spolin's book, Improv for the Lone Actor, doing four or five exercises out of that, feeling self with self, invisible audience. Like there's, there's so many different kinds of things you can do by yourself. And then doing a little bit of a voice straw workout and a physical workout. And then, you know, then it's 1130. It's not a bad time to start getting your auditions done if you, if you got to get them done, you know? So that's kind of what my day looks like. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so cool to see your process. It's such fun work. Like VO work is the greatest. It's so fun because it's, it's, it it is improv with, without having to come up with all the words (laughs) and they just give you a suggestion of a character and an environment and then go. And then, and then having the confidence, that's the other part of, of playing so much is having the confidence of your choices. And it is intimidating to be like, I'm sending this to DC. I'm sending this to Warner Brothers. I'm sending this to Marvel. I'm gonna, but I have to have the confidence that my Batman is my Batman. You have a very good Batman, by the way. Oh, I also wanted to say, Jacob and I, <laughs> Jacob and I wanted to say happy birth week. Thank you very I much. I hope you hey. had a great one. Um, yes, I did. Kif, I did. Kif was kind enough to send me a, a birthday video. And it was a happy birthday from... A, a lot of people he does the voice for, and one of them was Batman, and it was oh, it was that. really really great. <laughs> it was really great. I was like, "Whoa, I'm I, nerding out." <laughs> I think we should have Kip say, uh, "This is Batman," and you're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. Yes, I can do that. This is Batman, and you're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Show. <laughs> and then uh, here's here's uh, for Marvel fans. Here's the Iron Man. Hey, what's up? It's Tony Stark. Listen, uh, I want to welcome you, first of all, to the Storm Chaser Improv Show. Uh, Great stuff. Uh, Just listen. (laughs) Uh, Just listen. Oh, that's great. It's like even better if I close my eyes. I'm like, oh my gosh. (laughs) It's fantastic. It was the thing. It's like I've, I've been an impressionist for as long as I've been alive. But like when I was at Second City, that wasn't what the Second City did. And so I only did maybe one or two impressions in a show. I did Kid Rock and I did Elton John in one. You said you'd been doing it your whole life. Like, when did you realize that was something that you were drawn to doing? And how did you end up like landing at Second City? I was a huge fan of Yogi Bear when I was a kid. Cartoons were my jam. And then I just discovered that as much as a kid can do the voices, I could do them. And I could do Daffy Duck. I could do Sylvester. I could never get Bugs Bunny until I got older, but I could do a lot of those Hanna-Barbera characters. And then as I got older, you start, as your voice changes, you realize, and you become aware of the ones everyone does, the Jack Nicholson's, the Sean Connery's, the Christopher Walken's, you start to do those guys. And then while I was at Second City, there was an audition for Mad and I was putting together when they wanted impressions and no one was like, everyone was like, no one does impressions. And I was like, ah, I can do them. So I put together like an, a parody of It's a Wonderful Life and I did a bunch of impressions on it. And that was always kind of my game because I love movies. So I did my first demo reel was a series of impressions, auditions for the role of Quint and Jaws. So I did like, you know, Vince Vaughn and Bernie Mac and Nicolas Cage and Gene Wilder and... Robert Downey Jr. and started doing Harrison Ford when I got here and work a lot doing Harrison. I mean, I I get to play Han Solo in a cartoon. Also, you're a big nerd. So like, are you constantly like, I can't believe I get to do this? Because I'm always in awe. Like looking at your IMDb is like, is a, is a nerd's like wet dream. (laughs) It's nuts. Oh yeah. But like, there's a delicate balance of being a nerd and then being in the thing and doing the thing. Yes. Yeah. The the great thing is like everyone you're with are also nerds. Like when I was working on Batman versus Superman, Zach is a huge nerd. 
Zack Snyder's a massive nerd. He wouldn't be direct. He wouldn't be doing it if he wasn't. So we nerded out about Watchmen. And like there was a bit in the extended cut where um, my partner and I are in the cop car watching a football game. And at one point, someone in the stand stands up and holds up a sign of Richard Nixon. And Zach is watching on the little monitor with us in the in the cop car. And Mason, my partner, was like, is that Nixon? And I was like, oh, yeah, man, that's from Watchmen. And Zach goes, yeah, exactly. That's right. And then like the on the billet on the bull on the on the board as we drive out and it says Gotham Harbor, it's spray painted on there. Then the end is nigh, which is what Rorschach carries on his sign as he's walking around. So like there's Easter eggs all over the place. And Zach is a massive like nerd. So like when you're there making a Batman movie going, we're making a Batman movie. Isn't this cool? He's like, yeah, but let's get it. Yeah. Let's get the shot. And yeah. You're like, yeah, let's get the shot. Like freaking walking into this house in Detroit and there's a batarang, a feature batarang stuck into the wall. And it, and it's me with the flashlight going up to it, going, he's here. You know what I mean? It's, it's fabulous. So cool. It's, it's why you it's come so cool. here. How did I get into second city? I'd known about Second City ever since I was probably 13, 14 years old when HBO did a special commemorating Second City's history with George Went and Marty Short and Catherine O'Hara and all those guys. And then um, I was uh, married before I was married to Sherry and my ex-wife was in graduate school in Toledo at Bowling Green State University uh, when I found out about Second City Detroit opening. And this was in 1998. So I went up in uh, 97 and I went up and auditioned and got cast as an understudy of the touring company and started taking classes and then took a second. I donated a kidney to my dad. So while I was in recovery after that, I went back and then kept on teaching, started teaching. I was like, I was taking the benefit of being an understudy of the tour coach. You get free classes. So I got free first class and free second class. The third class was a character class and everybody wanted in that class and it was always filled up. So two semesters in a row went by and I couldn't get in. So then I went to Rico, Bruce Wade, who was our producer at the time. And I was like, hey, you know, I want to get, I want to continue to improve. I want to do the work, but I can't get into this class. And he was like, uh, want to teach? And I was like, what? He was like, yeah. He's like, I, I have so many students and not enough teachers. Why don't you cover uh, improv one? So I said, okay, I'll take an improv one. So I'm teaching improv one. First day, uh, Jamie Moyer walks into my classroom. No <laughs> way. Oh, I love Jamie. So, so I've known Jamie since, since back then. Wow. But I've been teaching ever since. That was 98. And I've been teaching improv consistently. So after Detroit, I got into, got into the touring company, directed the touring company, came a member of Main Stage, did three reviews there, moved to Second City Cleveland while I was teaching there and was directing student shows. And then on the Main Stage there for two reviews with... Oh God! With Randall, that was where Randall oh, and I met. Randall, Levin. he's the greatest, and George Kaliotis and uh, all those guys. After the theater closed, we played in Cleveland um, every Monday night at uh, Pickwick and Frolic, a comedy club, and then on Tuesday nights we would improvise down at this in the basement of this restaurant in Lakewood called Basa Vida, and there was like we'd played for seven people, and it was the best improv I'd ever done in my life consistently. And then we moved to Chicago. And when we got to Chicago, I started teaching at Second City again. And then voiceover just got too busy. So uh, I started doing this. And then when we got to Los Angeles, uh, I was like, I need money. And I want to get connected to this community. And the Second City Los Angeles location, it just moved to Hollywood, came in and started teaching. And, and that's been, you know, teaching and directing there since. So that's, that's kind of been my, my 20, 
25 year journey with second city, I guess. <laughs> oh, I love it. You're such a, like, it just, I always love hearing the histories of, of some of these theaters and like being such a, a big part of that's really cool. The best part is the teaching. The shows are great. The shows are great. And writing a review, there's nothing like it when it's great. There's, there's, there's nothing like doing amazing work for nobody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's the greatest and also incredibly frustrating. Remember we did that super show, Anatasha? Mm-hmm. It was the greatest. It was so fun. And it was like 10 people on stage with, and I had people from, from Second City, UCB, IO, Comedy Sports, Henson from Puppet Up, we had puppets and we had as many people in the audience as we had on stage. And it was an extraordinary show. I got a bunch of VL people and we would just play and we would play basically a truthful monologue set. What's fascinating about the truthful monologue form is that you just lay this bed of truth and honesty and connection to the audience. And then and, and then it's, it's magical afterwards. I don't understand it, but it is. They just listen to you and they love that. They love when you open up that covenant you create in the beginning of, I'm going to tell you my truth. And when we improvise, I'm going to be standing on the shoulders of that changes the space. It's so great. I think it sounds like something, and I don't, I don't know how much it's inspired by um, your second city work, but it's like the way that you start a review is like really showing your skill or vulnerability or whatever it is that can buy the audience for the rest of the show. And I feel like the truthful monologue kind of does that where you're like making a promise to them that you are going to be present and be honest and like, and really like share something with them. And so then they're more on board when you're throwing babies or doing something silly and they're like, we were, we already with you. We already like you, you know? Yeah. Completely. The truth is so powerful, especially in the improv show. I remember we had a couple of rehearsals when we were working with our coach, Holly Laurent, where, you know, we, we had felt like we'd sort of got like stuck in our scene work or whatever. And she's like, if you felt stuck, like just ask your scene partner a question and then just answer the question. Honestly, like she had, we, we went over a list of like, there's a great New York times article that has like 40 questions to make you fall in love. And we 36. also, how many? 36. 36 questions. Thank you. And we also had memorized a handful of them and we just like pop them out in the middle of an improv scene. And just, then we just, if we were asked that question, we knew like, just tell the truth. And it, it elevated our shows so much. Amazing. Oh, that's so great. It's so great. It's the easiest thing in the world and people avoid it. People avoid it. Chasing a joke, mm. chasing some laugh. Like who cares? Chasing a pun. Yes. Oh. Thank you, Kiff. I mean, <laughs> come on. Like all we want, all the reason we're sitting here around the campfire is to feel connected. Mm. There's nothing greater than, isn't that, there's a wonderful moment when you're improvising a scene and you have that and you say something and then someone in the audience catches themselves and they just go, huh. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you just made a great point in the conversation. Or you feel the air suck out like a vacuum from the room when you shock them. It's, it's what I've really loved about Like, I can't tell you how much Buddy Puzzle has helped me personally and come back from, come back from a performance injury. Mm-hmm. I auditioned for America's Got Talent doing impressions. And I got, I got beat up. And part of, part of that, between you and me and the government. And everyone listening to this podcast. 
and everyone mm-hmm. listened to this podcast. <laughs> The, the producers gave me my running order and told me which impressions to do in which order. And I was almost dead last on the evening and I didn't connect to the audience. And, um, and I certainly didn't connect to the judges. I didn't get buzzed, but I also got like this from Heidi Klum, <laughs> which was, oh, no. I mean, uh, the great, the, the kindest person to me was Simon Cowell. And, and, uh, they told me afterwards they weren't going to air it. And I was like, that's okay by me. And the very next day I was over at LA studios playing Han Solo in a cartoon. So it's like, whatever America's got talent, but the problem was that show took my confidence. And in this town, confidence is everything. Mm. And she, and I was just, I was trying to figure out what I was feeling and what was my problem. Randall had just moved to town and Sherry was like, why don't you, you know what you need to do is just go play. You need to go play. Mm. And just then Jacob sent me in that email. I was like, Hey man, we got a show. You want to come play? So I called Randall. I was like, look, it's five minutes. It's the two of us on stage. It's one scene. We meet some people. Let's go do it. And that was, that was, and what happened you know, over, over the course of six to seven months, I got my confidence fully back because of that gift that you guys did of inviting us to come play. Because you know how it is. If you don't get invited to play improv, you don't, unless you have to go create it yourself. You got to go find a space. You got to go generate an audience. So if someone reaches out to you, especially someone who's just for the most part is known as a teacher and director, a well-respected teacher and director, but they don't think of you as a performer and you get put into that box. And it's like, Oh man, it was, uh, it was really great. And, um, you know, to be able to get friends out of that and be part of a community, it was the the greatest gift in the world. So thank you. Thank you so much. I I can speak for Jacob because I know we've, we've talked about you and Randall a lot that like having you guys come play at the jigsaw. Um, and for our listeners who don't know, it's like, it's a show with 10 teams doing two person, five minute scenes. And so it's sometimes it's a hard ask because people are used to getting like a 30 minute set to do what, you know what I mean? To like have that. And it's, yeah. it's a short amount of time, but we found that it's, it's enough amount of time to feel it's like enough. you had a great show. And it's yeah. actually like, I don't know, we just found something really special with it. And, but watching you and Randall, grow back together and like kind of renew this spark over the yeah. course of many months. Like, of course yeah. we kept asking you back. Cause we were like, those guys have something so special going on. <laughs> that was just like destroying us. And we were very honored to have such brilliant vets come want to play our show. Cause like, oh, you know, five minutes, like if I ask like a lot of, uh, older improvisers they'll just they just say no they'll just be like yeah we don't we don't want to do your show because it's like it's five minutes and you're a youth you know i don't know (laughs) whatever it is but we're very honored to have you so thanks well we're we're honored to do it it's been a really like i said it's been a really healing opportunity for for us to get to know more improvisers younger generation of improvisers and also just stretch like the way you and jacob play is so freaking relaxed and confident and risky and edgy and hilarious. And Randall and I would look at each other like, oh man, like, remember, remember, 
let's go back. Let's play how we used to play with that same kind of recklessness. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I just <laughs> might finger you on stage, Randy. But like, you know, that's a body puzzle trademark. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, when, when, <laughs> but, but like, that's that, that kind of, that kind of freedom, that kind of uh, expression and exploration of, of where does the moment lead us? It just goes to show that you, you know, some of these wonderful state institutions, if they get, if they drift too far from that moment, they, they lose their vitality. And I, I, I think it's one of the great things about second city of Los Angeles is that we didn't really, we never really had a resident company. There's, you know, there's, there's additional shows and that kind of stuff, but a resident company that carrot can destroy a lot of ensembles. You know, it was one of the great things about coming up at second city Detroit. Lauren Michaels was never coming to look for folks at second city Detroit. And because of that, we wrote shows for Detroit. We wrote shows for our community and we wrote shows for each other. You know, when you start thinking about the big show and what's next, which is important, you do start to become a little bit more of a gunslinger and a little bit more trying to stand out. And that is the death of ensemble. You know what they say, chasing storms ain't free. So please enjoy this quick message from our sponsor and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by RY Originals, whole plant, vegan CBD vitamins that are full of healthy, purposeful vitamins, minerals, and herbs. Hemp is more nutrient dense than broccoli and berries. It's a superfood. For some reason, every other CBD product extracts and isolates the CBD from the plant, leaving all the nutrients behind. But RY says, not today, nutrients. You're coming with us. By lightly baking the hemp powder and mixing it in with other natural vitamins and minerals, RY creates a perfectly healthy and perfectly balanced experience. So, not only do they make you feel good, they are also really good for you. They're double lab tested and activated without extraction, which makes them truly original. RY Originals has crafted four unique blends. They've got Better Mood, Pain Lift, Sleep Tight, and Original Blend, all of which are available right now at shop.ryoriginals.com. That's S-H-O-P dot R-Y-O-R-I-G-I-N-A-L-S dot com. So check them out today, and don't forget to use discount code STORMCHASER at the checkout to get 420 off every bottle. R-Y Originals. Eat your greens. It's interesting how institutions and sometimes mentors can be the ones who give you that artistic injury like you had. Yes. Sometimes it's a show and an audience, but a lot of times it's a coach or a teacher or the institution itself that's like, we got to do this specific kind of work where you have this person to impress or whatever it is that um, squashes your voice and can really like take away your confidence. Um, yeah. it's interesting to hear you recover, um, from that by just getting up and going for it and, and, and doing it again and again. Do you no have any way. other, um, suggestions on how to treat artistic injuries, um, mm -hmm. and how to like build your confidence? It's one thing to say, I understand where it's coming from. You've probably, you guys have probably all coached at one point or another, right? Like some group or something like that. And then, then you think about the value you put on your notes. Do you really put a, a ton of value in the notes? Like the notes are important in the moment, but like, I'm also, this is, this is a thought that came to me in the context of a thing. 
And then you're like, um, maybe the next time, uh, try, try this. And then they do it and it doesn't work any better. And then you're like, eh, well, never mind that. Uh, let's move on to the next thing. But then the idea that what I said in that moment might cause an injury. Hmm. And it was something that was just a thought. And I just dismissed. I had an acting teacher back in Cleveland tell me, he's like, you know, you're good, but you'll never be great. Wow. You know what? Uh, who are you to say? Uh, my IMDb crushes your IMDb. You know what I mean? Like it, there, you do have to get to a place where in your healing and in your injury from that of take all that with a grain of salt, less than a grain of salt. If someone has, you know, it's like everyone says, oh, I believe, I believe if I'm going to believe the good press, I have to believe the bad press too. Okay. But we take the bad press to heart. The, the best training that I've discovered for artistic injury and healing uh, is this guy named Don Green. He is a performance coach. Uh, his website is winningonstage.com. I don't make any money from recommending him. He's just been super helpful. Did he write an audition book? Yes. Okay. Audition success and uh, performance success. Yes. That's a great, that's a great book. Go on. It is a great book. His work is predominantly uh, laid out for musicians. Like you play the cello or the trumpet and you're in Juilliard because he taught at Juilliard for a bunch of years after being a U.S. diving coach and an army ranger. Whoa. His work is specifically about confidence and training anxious. So like we've all had callbacks. And callbacks themselves have a certain level of anxiety to them because all of a sudden there's stakes. If you like do this, practice improvising a scene, but do like 30 seconds of jumping jacks beforehand, get your heart rate up, practice with an elevated heart rate. You become accustomed to playing with an elevated heart rate. You can't control your heart rate when you go into a callback. So get accustomed to playing that way. Mm -hmm. He's got like 50,000 tips that are like that. You can add that to your daily practice. <laughs> That's cool. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And finding yourself coach is an exercise that, that helped me with my audition. I, I mean, I'm on a cartoon. I'm under, I'm under NDA, so I can't say what it is, but it's a big one. It's recognizable. And when I got the first audition, I was like, Amazing. So I worked and worked and worked it. And I went into the office and I did the audition. And then I heard nothing for about a month, maybe a month and a half. And then I got the callback where I had to go to the studio to do the callback. By this time, I had started studying Don. I heard about him on a podcast on the Happiness Lab that really pinged me his stuff. He does this exercise called centering, where basically the advice he gave to the kid on the show was A, D, the, the just context real quick. This kid is auditioning to play for the Chicago Lyric Opera um, as a trombonist. And he was like, I really want that gig because it would be awesome. And because my girlfriend wants to live in Chicago. So I really want that job. And Don's first thing is like, great, prepare for it. But start by untethering from the expectation. Your worth is not going to be defined by whether or not you get that job. And you have no control over that. You have no control over what everybody else does next to you. You have control over what you do in the moment. So what are you doing? Are you preparing? How are you going to mitigate the anxiety of that? How do you detach from the expectation and change your attention, change your intention? So like this particular exercise, the centering exercise, you begin by 
sitting comfortably and then looking down at a 45 degree angle. Right now I'm looking at the zero on my keyboard. And then you choose a specific intention for the meditation. And the intention has nothing to do with getting the job. The intention is for this exercise, I just want to have fun. And I want to, I want to be able to play all the notes regardless of the tempo. I think I can play all the notes with, with less than five errors. That's my intention. Uh, and I want to have fun and I want to express myself. So then taking that and then uh, the breathing, you, you breathe three times uh, to release any tension. And then you breathe three times down to your core, which is just below your navel and about two inches in. And then uh, these are slow breaths, but I'm ripping through this and you can certainly look up this, this technique. And then you send your mind, you send your intention down to that point in your core over the course of three breaths. And then for three breaths, you visualize the successful accomplishment of that goal, playing those notes, hitting them. Well, I'm, I'm not a musician. So uh, let's say my intention is to um, have a really fun time playing this copy, making the copy come alive to me, feeling it, seeing my scene partners. So visualizing that. And then during the course of three breaths, visualizing myself accomplishing that in a positive way, building that confidence. And then series of three breaths, bringing it back up to the right brain, done, ready to create. Do that exercise three to seven times a day and watch your confidence build. And watch yourself to be able to detach from those things. And folk, that's, the, that's the thing. It's like if you, if you attach to doing the work that you want to do, if you connect to, to the real goal, which is being present fully, then you'll get to do those things because you're the right guy for the job because you were thinking about doing your craft. George Lucas wasn't setting out to go make the world's greatest you know, a series of, you know, movies and stories, et cetera, in this universe. He just wanted to tell one little story based on a couple of his favorite things. And, and he had a big vision for it. So keep, keep your focus small and manageable. And what happens is what happens. You have to kind of be okay with that. Because if, if you find joy in it, then who cares what everybody else says? Wow. That is, man, that is such good advice. I'm going to read that book. I have a really dumb thought that you're like, yeah, duh, of course, Tasha. But I was like, you know, before an audition, if I, if I'm thinking more about the audition than I am about whatever the character is thinking about or going through, I'm fucked. (laughs) But if I'm like so into the character in love with it and just like really thinking about that and caring about that, I, I'll nail it, you know? Um, and Dude, so that's you, being able to cultivate that mindset. I'm like, oh, that's amazing. Totally. You'll always be satisfied. So you play it in that moment. You get to have yeah. that, that character for the, that, that amount of time you do get you to may have never, it. That may be the only time you get to play that character and be considered and someone's going to put eyeballs on it. Yeah, absolutely. So why would you rock that moment with anxiety? I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do it. Well, why do I want to do it? I want to do it so I get to do it. I want to do it so I, so I get to have a director, writer, producer tell me how to do it when it's time to do it. Or do I want to show them how I do it with the full reckless abandon of how I would do it and have them go, yes, or awesome, but no. Great. To, to complete that story, when I got the call back 
I've been practicing this technique. And Don will say, you do it up to 21 times and then you can shorten it. So rather than doing three breaths, you do one breath. So one breath to relax, one breath down, one breath. To, and then you do that three to three to seven times a day for 21 times. And then you can shorten it again to try to get the entire process in the length of one breath. That way you can, you can walk into a meeting and someone asks you a question and you can go, well, and then you've centered yourself and calmed yourself and put yourself into a place where you're able to respond. So that's, that's kind of the goal is to speed that process up. And that was what happened. I walked in, I saw the names on the callback sheet. I feel like that's Steph Curry at the free throw line or like right before he shoots the three. He, he's Bingo. done this process mentally and yeah. physically so many times that in a split second and totally askew, he can still hit that same shot. Absolutely. And, and taking the stakes out of it because it's not about the fact that we're 72 to 72. And there's no time on the clock. It's, oh, it's a ball that I put in that basket that I do all the time. I've even heard shooters, basketball players talk about, I, I, we always talk about how basketball and improv are so related. But oh, yeah. I've heard basketball players say when they take a three-point shot, they're actually not so concerned about whether or not it goes in. They're concerned about if their elbow is here and if they flip their finger, if the, <laughs> if the process was correct and they missed, then, then they missed, but, you know, they're not concerned about whether it went in They're They're concerned about if, if they did all the form, if they checked all the boxes they were supposed to check. Yeah. It's exactly what you're saying with your auditioning. Like you can't be concerned about the result or whether you get it. You can be concerned about, about you yes. and about your play. That's so cool. Exactly. Exactly. That's so cool, man. While we're, uh, kind of talking about, uh, the DC universe, um, do you find <laughs> yes. a difference in being on those huge sets, like compared to uh, um, a smaller set um, that's not like a big studio set, and like what's that like? A Zack Snyder set is a delight. Zach and Deborah are legitimately sweet, kind people. We got done shooting our scene where we go into the house, and Zach put his arm around both Mason and I and thanked us for a great night of work and. And we shared this sort of feeling of like, how fun is this that we get to do this? And, and that's the story I heard from every single person who has worked with him in every other context. I got to do some work on a big film that's coming out soon that was supposed to come out that they're waiting. And the director was marvelous. Every, uh, so many directors I've worked with have just been the greatest because we, there is a lot of pressure, but like you don't get there by not being not being excited about being part of that process. You feel like they're the thing that they have in common is that they're grateful to be there and also like really kind leaders. Yeah, to a certain extent. And like, also it's, 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 it's weird. It's like, sometimes it's hierarchy of who's on set. Like sometimes the director might be the name that's on the thing, but the star that's on the show is the big name and things change when the star shows up. Like, I can tell you this story. Um, I worked in a film called Danny Collins. It wasn't a huge film, but but the players are. It was me and Al Pacino in a scene. And Dan Fogelman is the director of the film. And this is before This Is Us, where he's the showrunner creator of This Is Us. So he, and he had already done Gallivant and a few other things. So I got to set and he was effusive. He's like, I love your audition. You were so great. It's so great to have you. Let me, let me introduce you to Al. So uh, the first day we're on this was the first day shooting. It was a big party scene at this house and Al's kind of sitting in a chair 
just kind of keeping to himself. And Dan's like, Al, Al, I want you to meet Kiff. And he's like, hey, how are you? And it's like, nice to meet you. It's like, okay. You know, and that was it. And then you're like, all right, well, I just met Al Pacino. How about that? <laughs> the, I worked two days. That was the first day and then the very last day of production. And the last night we're shooting at this, this scene of a gate at a house. I get to set and it's the same thing. Uh, you know, I get there where it's a night shoot. So I get there around about six. It's a, they're rapping. So there's a mariachi band and like kind of festival attitude. But like Al's not on set. And when they're like, okay, Al's coming to set. Then the place, you know, that energy when there's, when you're at a circus and then the tigers come out and everyone's like just a little on edge, it was like that. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was just an awareness that Al is on set. So Al came out, Dan takes me over to him. Al, you remember Kiff? Well, you met him. Oh, yeah, all right. Good to see you again. Let's go run through the scene. He's in a Lamborghini driving up, and I'm playing this guy at the front gate who's trying to delay him because his girlfriend is having an affair on him. I come over to his window and start talking to him. And, and as we're playing the scene, he keeps looking away from me and then going, <laughs> like, what? This crazy high-pitched laugh. I was like, what is happening? And then I realized I was cracking him up. I'm just like, I get the feeling from Dan that it's okay. To like play with them. I come over to the window. I was like, hey, Mr. Collins, how's your show tonight? It's good, kid. It was good. Uh, you know, I'd really like to go inside. All right, no problem. Well, I'll open the gate for you. But what what shows that what numbers did you play tonight? You know, the the usual stuff. I just want to get inside. Okay, well, have a good night, Mr. Collins. Like that's literally the exchange. But I kept making him laugh. And then he would push the button to open the gate and it would open and then close. And I told him, like, at one point, I'm like, if you keep pushing that button, it's not going to make the gate move any faster. And that <laughs> broke him. And then it was like, just stupid, just stuff that you do. We're improvisers. We're, we're playing the reality of the scene. He wouldn't push the button and he'd close it and then watch it and be like, you know, do you want me to push that button for you? And feeling that I had the freedom to do that because the director seemed like it was cool. At one point, I said, as he was pulling in, good night sleep tight. And he yelled at me, don't the bed bugs by. <laughs> so we were straight up improv. That told me we were playing together. Wow. So we get done, we wrap it. And he comes out of the car and he puts his arm around me and he turns to Dan and he says, I can work with this guy all night. Oh, Got to improvise with Al Pacino. Yeah. So I've just been really lucky on the, on the sets that I've been on. You know, I've, I've found that if, if the vibe is right and you have the freedom to improvise or not, as long as you get what they need to get, if you take the risk um, to do that or you have that freedom to do it, the people, people love it. People will respond to it because you're engaged and you elevate that role. That's the other part is like, I'm learning this. I'm taking producing classes at UCLA Extension right now. And like, you think about how much you want to be able to have every aspect of your show bring value. And if I can bring in someone who's going to say the lines or bring in someone who's going to say the lines and be in the scene and is going to make the other scene, is going to make the story better. I'm going to go with that person every single time. And having that perspective from a producer standpoint of not like who looks right for this, who's the prettiest character actor, who cares? What you really want is someone who's engaged and alive and is going to feel real. Coming back around to our, our improv stuff, it's the end game, right? Like we're all in ensembles and we practice these skill sets so that when you do meet that opportunity, that you can roll in there and keep it going and keep the story going and keep the world alive. Yeah, it seems like so much is just, it's the focus in improv of living and breathing in the world that you've established as opposed to just like inventing 
a funny way to say something. It's like, it's really not that hard once you have made the strong choice and you just need to live as yourself in the world. It's exactly it. Dude, this is so cool. I feel so (laughs) jazzed to like, you know, like work on my daily practice and like fucking bring my improv and just like keep getting better. I just, man, yeah. I just, I wanted to tell the guys this, that- Jacob and I went to coffee with Kiff and his wife, Sherry, and in the middle of coffee, he was like, oh, I got a voiceover audition. Do you guys want to see what I do? He pulls out his bag, pulls out his mic, and he's like, come on. And we like get in his car. And then, you know, he does his, he like (laughs) listens to, um, you know, this like recording and then does an impression and like shoots off this audition super quick. And we were both like, and it happened in like five minutes. Like it was like yeah. such a, per- like just like boom, bam, bam. And we were both like, wow, how did you get that together so quick? And he's like, I do it every day. I do it multiple times a day often. And I just felt so inspired. And I feel the same thing in this conversation where I'm like, oh my God, I got to get my shit together. Kip's like killing it. You know, <laughs> getting your shit together doesn't, it, it takes longer than a day. It takes daily pursuit of it. And like, I needed to, you know, to meet that moment, to give that impression to you, like go through the steps backward to reverse engineer that to like, I have a desktop computer at home with a microphone. So if I leave my house and there's an audition, oh no, I can't do that audition until I get home. And it might be three hours from now. And that might be too late for this trailer that could pay me, you know, 1500 to 1750. So I... Uh, that's, that's worth, that's worth investing in a laptop and maybe a little portable recording device and then getting a portable recording device and then figuring out how to do that and turn on the Wi-Fi and like all the, all the other steps that go into it and then doing it and then booking some recording a bit for Jimmy Kimmel and in a driveway in West Hollywood in my car. And it goes to air what I recorded in my car and then go, Oh, I think I got this. And then being teaching a class at second city and in the middle of the class being like, Oh uh, shit. It's a call from my agent. Hang on guys. Uh, what's up Vinny? Sure guys. Uh, I'm teaching a voiceover class. So now you get to see what it's like. Don't tell anyone. Cause we're under an NDA. it sounds like I'm going to be doing the voice of shredder and a, a teenage mutant Ninja Taylor's trailer. So, so I, I need, I need soundproofing. So someone puts a, puts a hoodie over my head and I duck behind a thing with my four sixteen, and they love it because it's part of the reality of I don't, I don't want to live in my closet all day. I don't want the golden handcuffs keeping me here. I want to be able to go out and enjoy the city. I'm also working and on camera. So you have to kind of nurture all those, all those avenues because it takes a lot to build a career to be able to keep paying the bills, you know? So I'm, I'm so grateful that you guys got to see that and get a sense of that and, and also know that it comes from that process of, of trial and error and building and failing. And that it, at the end of the day, it comes from, you know, trying to outfox your competitor. I want to be the guy who can say yes, when all my competitors say no, you know, that, and, and that's what portability means. That's what improv is. That's why I'm taking classes. It's why I try to establish a daily practice. It's why voice straw. It's why all that stuff. I, I want I want to do this for the rest of my life. And missing opportunities prohibits that. So how do you meet it? And we, as improvisers, we're wired to say yes and. So what does that really mean beyond what we do on stage? You have such a a, a long, long list of like cool 
like gigs you've done and but in and and you just said you know you want to do it for the rest of your life what's what's like something that you haven't checked off your bucket list yet that you're like oh i hope i get to do that someday i want to play uh a a, uh a slightly funny homicide detective on an hour-long procedural as a series regular on a network yeah i want i want dick wolf money Mm. um you know (laughs) i want to i want to be the next dennis farina on my bingo card as a voice actor, I've, li- I've been, I've done everything you can do. So now it's looping back to what do I want to revisit? I want to create projects for myself and for my friends, people that I love working with. I want to amplify voices that haven't had the opportunity to be amplified. I want to use my energy as rocket fuel to tell stories that have been overlooked. I want to dumb. I want to do big, dumb, hilarious action family comedies. That's those are the kind of things that 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 I really love and relate to and connect to. I want to stay here and keep making. It's one of those things. Like I mean, through ADR, I've been able to play Batman in a movie, in a theatrical feature. My voice is Batman. My voice is Iron Man in Avengers Endgame. I am Batman in Justice League. So like me with all 240 pounds of me, got to play superheroes. And I am Han Solo. I am a pirate on Pirates of the Caribbean. I am all the things that I hoped I'd get to do. And and I can tell you, like, that stuff is great. It doesn't keep you warm at night. The stuff that really does is teaching, giving work to friends, helping people out, coming up with ideas that people go, yeah. Let's do that. Oh, that's so cool. Are you, I love, I mean, I I totally agree with you, like wanting to be able to give your friends jobs and opportunities and work with them or like help them achieve things is, it really is a huge motivating factor for me. It's like the reason why I want to like be writing more and like directing and producing my own stuff is because I'm like, I do want to hire my friends. I want to be in a position to be like, you're cool and you can do this thing that I don't yeah. know if anyone's seen you do it yet. And we're going to do it right now is like my yes. favorite thing in the world. Um, it's the greatest thing. It's so That's good. So awesome. Have you been, have you been writing much lately? Yeah. Mostly because I'm in uh, this, this, these classes, I'm in a producing, I'm in a story writing class at UCLA extension. I can't recommend UCLA extension enough. I cannot. the classes are cheaper than a groundlings class. I'm taking a story writing class with a woman who was a former vice president of, uh, oh God, I can't remember which studio, but now she's an independent producer and we're doing, we're studying story writing and we're getting her feedback. And at the end of the semester, we're pitching to a network executive. And then I'm taking a finance class, a business of entertainment class with the producer of the Meg. And he's bringing in people who are like independent producers and financers and talking through the, the whole process of how you finance. And I'm studying ind- entertainment financing with a woman who is an independent producer who's produced multiple films and television series, including uh, The Dog Whisperer. And she's written a book about entertainment finance from top to bottom and how to make your how to make money and like how to how to put together smart budgets. And last semester I took a line producing class. So I, I have uh, budgeting experience and um a class on uh, on pre-production into production with a woman who is a producer on Free Willy and uh, and Lethal Weapon, and uh, and then an independent filmmaking class with a woman who's an independent filmmaker. 
And like all these classes were like six ninety nine a semester. And I'll get my producing certificate when I'm done. And, and then I can pull the trigger, start producing. What do we need? Well, I need, I need, I need a, I need a script. I need a script that I can show to a director. And then I want that director to return my call. And if the director likes it, then I can attach the director and then I can attach a cast and then I can go do pre-sales and I can go to a sales agent and be like, Hey, uh, you know, how is this going to sell in England, Spain with these attachments? It's an action thriller with Jason Statham, 10 grand, $10 million. Uh, do you think this would sell? Yeah, we love it. All right, great. Well, I got, I got that much and now I can take it to the bank and get the money. Like, it, it's it's a it's just this process and learning the process where it seemed like a mystery where it seemed like well I'm going to produce this thing well what does that mean I don't really know well producing is really specific even though the title gets corrupted if you notice when you watch a film and you see PGA behind the letters of the name of the person that's the producer that's yeah. who did the work that's the little red hen who made the bread but like that's the thing is it's no different than what you did when you started out with the pack and like reached out to the pack and saying, Hey, I got an idea for a show I want to do. It's called buddy puzzle. And it's this, and they go, all right, cool. Let's try it. And then they do. And then they keep scheduling you. That's what it is. That's in essence, what it is. It's just, it's just the added pressure of millions of dollars, but, but um, you also don't do everything with that million dollars all at once. It's one step at a time. And you're just learning whatever you need to know to get to the next step, the next level. Right. And it's all commitment until you close. It's fascinating. And I'm learning a ton. And at the end of the day, I want to know it so I can focus on the creative. What I'm doing right now with the story class is I'm, I've, I, I've had this idea for a screenplay ever since I was in my early 20s. But while I was still stuck in Grand Rapids trying to find a way out, I started writing a screenplay uh, based on an old cartoon from the 70s. And now I'm developing it. Once I have what I want in place and figure out how I would do the attachments and I've already got some ideas, then it's a matter of trying to get the IP. If I can get the rights, if I can't get the rights, it won't be, that's the cool thing is like the writing that I'm doing has been writing like one paragraph stories that I could develop into a two page treatment that I could find a writer and hire the writer as a pay for play and have them write my screenplay for me. And then contract them to do, you know, additional drafts, but have that script to be able to attach a director, you know, figuring out what do I, do I want to um, try to get, try to get the rights to different things? Or what if I came up with the ideas or what's going to help? What's, what's going to make it easier for me to be able to get IP? You know what I mean? It's one thing to be able to reach out to Warner Brothers and say, Hey, I want to do a, I want to do a star Wars thing all my own. They're like, go away. Um, that'll be easier from the inside. But at the same time, if you start to build a track record, do a small feature that breaks out at Sundance, maybe, or you get distribution, there's, it's, it's the wild west and it's, it's exciting and terrifying. And if you're not terrifying yourself every day, um, you're sitting still. Ooh, ooh, that's my new, <clears throat> that's my new motto from this one. You guys, awesome. if you're not terrifying yourself every day, you're sitting still. Um, this was so great. Does anybody, oh, boys, do you have any other questions before we let him go? I mean, I have a million, but I feel like this is, we've, we've got to a good point, I think, with it all. Okay. Well, if there's anything you want, if you have any additional questions, don't hesitate to reach out. Or you can do a speed round if you want, like, really fast, glib answers <laughs> to short questions that you might have. Uh, I'm happy to do a hot seat. <laughs> I think we'll just have to have you back, man. This I has know. been so yeah, awesome. So, so 
I'd love it. So inspirational and so uh, educational and just so fun. It's checked all the boxes, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I love this art form. I love being able to talk about it. I don't get to that often because I've been so branded for voiceover, uh, which I love and I'm also passionate about. And I love talking about all of it, but I especially love talking about it and sharing what I've learned uh, with people who are, who want to learn it, who are hungry for it. You know, I want to demystify this work because there is like this weird curtain about what happens when you get on set. Like when you get called to set, find somebody and tell them you're there. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> find an AD. Find yeah. like a COVID now. It makes it a little bit easier because you go to the front desk and it's like before they let you on. So you just go, hi, I'm Kiff. I'm here for a seven o'clock call and it's, it's six 50 and I'm I'm on time and I'm here. Uh, can you point me out to, because so often when you go to location, you have no idea who anybody is. And you have to, if you don't call the second AD, you're kind of walking around the set carrying a bag of stuff. And you might talk to a transpo guy, but they don't necessarily know who's in production. So it becomes about like, like my second day on, on, <laughs> on Parks and Rec, uh, Dean Holland is the showrunner. Like he was like one of the creators of the show. And when I got to set, I was walking around and, and he spotted me. He's like, Hey, are you all right? And I was like, yeah. Oh, hey, he's like, I remember you, you, you played the uh, truck driver or the other uh, garbage man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, tell me your name again. Dean. Oh, great to meet you, Dean. I'm, listen, I need to find uh, find some second AD. This is the showrunner. And, and he was the greatest. <laughs> and like, that's the other thing is like, when you get to a place of being in charge of things, you get to set the tempo and the vibe for that environment. And it really does get set by you. And it's your job to, to protect that environment. And I feel that as a teacher and I feel that as a director too, and as a, as a senior player, you know what I mean? Of like, what, what kind of a space am I creating to make certain that everyone feels not, uh, it's, it's not that everyone feels welcome. It's that everyone is welcome. You know what I mean? And that, that distinction, like feeling welcome implies that you're not really, but we're going to go out of our way to make certain that you feel that way uh, versus you are welcome. You are necessary. You are a valued part of our ensemble. And it's not enough for you to feel welcome. It's for you to know that you are and that so that you can, so that you can finger your seat partner. <laughs> uh, um, because, you know, because that freedom, that's, that's real freedom. You know what I mean? To be able to make the moves that you feel you need to make. And if you feel welcome, you'll be hesitant. You won't bring the fullness of it. You'll, there's, still, there's still some kind of unspoken thing that I'm not certain I can get away with it. And it's a risk. Know that when you get called to set, you are welcome. Unless they tell you you're not. And then so be it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. That's the, that's, that's the perfect bow. Um, awesome. thank you so much for, for doing this and my pleasure. You were oh, just, this is amazing. yeah, you're just a delight and I'm, I'm just so, um, appreciative of, uh, everything you are as, as an artist and a person. So thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Where can this people, um, where can people, uh, support you and follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Kiff VH, K I F F V H. I'm on Instagram at Kiff VH. Um, I occasionally go, I do go on clubhouse. I was just a guest on Danny Burnside's VO pros, um, uh, club. And, uh, I'm, you can follow me there at Kiff VH. I think at Kiff VH, pretty sure it's at Kiff VH. And then, um, my website is at, is KiffVH.com and I have like my demos and all that other garbage, but then also you can reach out to me if you want independent coaching. Um, I'm happy to do that. 
and I'll coach improv, I'll coach uh, VO, uh, whatever. And then also I've been producing a podcast called All Over VoiceOver for the past six years, Um, All Over VoiceOver. And you can get that at allovervo.com. Um, or wherever fine pod, uh, podcasts are caught by podcatchers. It is a soup to nuts, one-on-one interview conversation about voiceover with people from talent agents to casting directors to multiple VO actors, audiobook narrators, engineers, tech folks, other podcast hosts, uh, coaches and teachers, uh, there's 80 some odd episodes that I've that I've produced, and um, I, I can't recommend them enough. I think it's a it's a great education for VO if you're interested in it, both from regardless of whether it's commercial or animation or video game. Yeah, so you can check that out. And then let me see if there's any other way. Facebook is just you know it's for birthday stuff. So <laughs> you can find me there. But you can you can join the list of people waiting to be connected to. But I'm I'm I, I'm I'm very active in those places. I'm on TikTok too, but but TikTok I'm. And it's not, it's my speed and it's not, uh, you'll basically see videos of me in the car at Ralph's at 11 o'clock. <laughs> uh, I should do something. Let me do something stupid. Uh, so yeah, but that's, that's how you find me. Awesome. Hey you, thanks for listening to the storm chaser improv podcast show. You can see storm chaser improvise live on facebook.com backslash storm chaser improv. For showtimes and other fun bits from the podcast, connect with us on Instagram at Stormchaser Improv. If you want to join us for shows in our Zoom meetings and hang out before or after, send us a DM on Instagram and we'll send you a link to the show. We'd love to see you and hear you and hopefully, fingers crossed, laughing. And lastly, if you've enjoyed the podcast and you're feeling generous, please consider leaving us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews are a great way for us to lure unsuspecting guests into our awesome podcast trap. That's it for me. I'm finished. I'm packing it up and leaving town for good. Anyways, thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show.